Thank you very much, Clark, and welcome to everybody in Zoom land. Wonderful. Welcome. So good to see you. And uh, hope everybody can hear me. I think you can all see me, even the people behind me. I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to uh, lay out what we're going to do this evening. Lord Jesus, you were amongst us as one who was single. Help us now by your Holy Spirit to see your view of singleness and so live and serve in your wider family, the church, that we may accomplish the will of our Father in heaven, from whom his whole family derives its name. Amen. Amen. So this will be a little bit different than my uh, regular talks, because it'll be a little bit longer. And uh, I'll explain, like, I have three sections. Um, I, I have cut things down a little bit. But um, I wanted to uh, make sure that I covered all the bases. And I actually have remainders of sections, should you ask me questions that I was unable to address. So, because uh, it's a very, in a sense, a very contentious area, uh, being single. And um, I think uh, you'll probably find, don't try and take it all in. There is no way in which you are going to take everything in, because as I said, it's in, it's in three distinct sections. And uh, but just allow God to give you that which is important for you, whether you are single or married. I mean, Greg has been complaining because he said, well, I'm, I've been married since birth. But, um, <laughs> but I said, well, no, because you have a very important part to play in ministry to singles. And so uh, there'll be something here, I hope, for both singles and married. So you might ask, uh, well, Brett, uh, what are your qualifications? Well, I've been single for all of my 76 years. And uh, second, I have ministered in churches with large proportions of singles. In my last parish, I estimated about 45% of households were single adults of all ages, either unmarried, never married, widowed, or divorced. And third, I don't think I've got singleness all worked out. After all these years, I have not got it all worked out, but I'm going to share with you some insights uh, from the scriptures, from my own life, and from the, from the views of others. I have some very, very helpful comments, uh, particularly females as well, which is helpful because I'm not a female, obviously. Anyway, so I'm going to approach the subject from three perspectives. First, I want to look briefly about what Paul says about singleness and celibacy as a call from God in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9. Then we will look at some dimensions of singleness. We will look at uh, the challenges that come from being single. We'll look at the importance of uh, being the church and opportunities of ministry by singles and to singles. And then we'll look more in-depth at the whole question of intimacy and God's provision for us as singles in this area. So let's begin. Let's turn first to uh, Paul's view of singleness and cel celibacy. Now, if I were to ask a regular Sunday morning congregation, which is better to be married or to be single? And I suspect that the overwhelming response would be the former from both those who are married and those who would like to be. There would be a smaller number who would vote 
for the other, people who aren't married and feel their lives are fulfilled, and those who are married and wish they weren't. <laughs> and I suspect that the default position uh, for most Christians is heterosexual marriage is the norm and God's will for the majority, and that singleness is exceptional and God's will for some. And for those who find themselves involuntarily unmarried, there is sympathy and even pity that they are missing out. Well, it may come as a surprise to you that the Apostle Paul saw things quite differently, or at least from another perspective. In chapter 7 uh, of 1 Corinthians, Paul discusses, amongst other things, the issue of celibacy and singleness. And it's here that he makes the case of single as being a call from God. Single as being a call from God. So I'm going to read the first uh, nine verses of 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps for mutual consent and for a time so that you may de devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You probably don't hear that that often read in church. <laughs> probably be x-rated now for those of you who have uh, got traditional versions translations of 1 corinthians or who have absorbed the traditional the contemporary culture's view of paul as a frustrated old bachelor who was sexually repressed you might say that's a no-brainer anyone who says it is good for a man not to marry must have major issues in this department. So let's bypass this chapter and go on to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. Well, the thing is, someone who could write about love with such passion and depth in chapter 13 can't be as repressed as all that. And so as good Bible-believing Christians, we know that we cannot just bypass one section of Scripture because it's uncomfortable. It needs to be dealt with. However, there is, I suspect, a sneaking suspicion in many of us that Paul didn't have it quite right about sex, and that's why he advocates singleness. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but. say First, doesn't Paul say it is good for a man not to be married? And the alternate reading sounds even worse. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Wow. Now, if the church had followed that, there wouldn't be that many Christians around. But this is the thing is, it's not his opinion. 
He's quoting a letter they wrote to him. And they were saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because he says, now for the matters you wrote about. So you've got to see it in quotation marks. He is speaking about their co concept of sexuality. And the problem, the situation was that in Corinth, which was a hyper-sexualized city, but to realize that, so people coming out of that culture, obviously some of them had gone to the other extreme. And they were saying that sex is unspiritual. Sex is unspiritual. And because of this, certain women were denying conjugal love to their husbands. Some uh, older ones of us are familiar with the 1970s play, uh, No Sex, Please, We're British. <laughs> and in first century Corinth, they were saying, uh, No Sex, Please, We're Christian. And Paul utterly refutes this attitude as being ungodly. And while agreeing that our sexual impulses must be under control, he affirms the holiness and normalcy of sexual relations within marriage says, do not deprive each other. So I'm going to ask you, would you like to read this? The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, wife to her husband, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is upholding the mutuality of sexual intimacy within marriage. But you may say, the next verse cancels all of, all of that. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Well, yes, it is. Uh, it is a concession, but the concession is not about having sex that Paul is saying the concession. It is abstaining from sexual relations that Paul is saying is the concession. You can abstain for a while, but don't make that your normal practice. But of course, most people just reading it think, oh, Paul is saying, you know, only have sex if you absolutely have to, you know. Well, it's the opposite way around. Anyway, remember the context <coughs> is that Paul is addressing the hyper-spiritual types who feel it is more godly not to have sex. What about the next verses? This, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has his own, your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So looking at verses uh, eight and nine first, Paul is addressing those who were previously married, widows and widowers. And for reasons he will go into later, when he speaks to the never before married, he encourages them not to remarry, not to, 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 to marry. But if sexuality is an issue, then they should. There is no shame in that. But there is shame in losing sexual control. And so the phrase burn with passion, which seems rather negative towards sexual desire, is not in the original. It's just burn. These people were not burning with sexual passion. They were satisfying it in the wrong way outside of the marriage bed. So the phrase should read, 
burn with shame at indulging in sexual relations outside marriage. And again, Paul is countering the hyper-spiritual tendencies which would pressure these couples to abstain from marriage as being ungodly, and he encourages them to go ahead and marry. So there's nothing wrong with satisfying sexual desire in marriage. But what about Paul's statement, I wish that all of you were as I am. Now, Paul may never have been married, although that was unusual for a Jewish rabbi. He may have been, abandoned, may have been a widowed, or he may have been abandoned by his wife when he became a Christian. Paul's situation was probably one of the latter two, as his exhortation for people remaining as he is, is in the context of speaking to those who were previously married. And the way he phrases his statement does not mean that he merely wants everyone to be celibate, but rather that he wants everyone to be free in Christ, to be free from both the hyper-spirituality, which denies sexuality, as well as free to resist expressing sexual desire if called to remain single by God. And he affirms both the married and the unmarried state when he says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So Paul's view of marriage, of sex, is not repressive and, and warped, but balanced and wholesome. And this is important to grasp as he then goes on in the rest of the chapter to recommend the single life, which we do not have time to look at tonight but I will summarize. So first, he reminds the Corinthians Christians that their primary identity is in Christ. Not listening to social pressures, even within the church, to change themselves into something else. You should get married. You must be married, etc. Second, he speaks about the benefits of singleness. One is freedom from external pressures that make marriage difficult, uh, that singles can avoid and freedom to serve God that singleness provides. So Paul makes the case for singleness as a calling from God. We can talk more about the chapter if you want later on. That's part one. Let's go to part two, dimensions of singleness. So we're gonna look at three dimensions, the challenges that come with being single, the importance of being the church, and opportunities for ministry to and by singles. So singleness is something that we all experience at some time or other in our lives. And the single state is either temporary or permanent. People are single for a variety of reasons, have not yet married, death, divorce, separation, emotional or physical disability, lack of opportunity or choice, or any combination of the above. Now, many see singleness as a curse. Their daily prayer is, dear God, please don't let me remain single. And their fear is that God's answer will be in the negative and they will be doomed to singleness forever. And this is intensified when others appear to look at singles with pity or suspicion. An example of the misreadings of singles is a woman in her 40s who said she, she felt patronized by the question, are you going home for Christmas? And she replied, no, I'm going to my mother's. A single person who has few friends of the opposite sex might be suspected of being gay, 
while one who has many friends of the opposite gender might be looked upon as flirtatious and or hard to please for not settling down. For many, single or married, singleness is not usually high on the list of desirable states of life. So in one way, this general aversion to singleness is shared by God, as we read in Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So this aversion to being alone is, uh, is built into us. And I believe it comes from our being made in the image of God himself. Because according to the Bible, God is not a unitary being. He is one God in three persons. We won't go into that. But the concept is that if God is love, then he has to be more than just a single solid unitary being, because who did he love before we came along? That's the big argument for the Trinity, the argument of love. Otherwise, you have God who's never experienced love, and all of a sudden, he creates somebody. Oh, I have this new feeling. I wonder what it is. See, it just, it just doesn't compute. So the whole idea of God being community is built right into the concept of God being love. God is community. So the thing is, is that through the resurrection of and death, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been adopted into that community, that family. Says this, let's do, do this together. The spirit that's one of them but but one of the most um, one of my favorite words of scripture <laughs> we cry our father we are to reflect and experience the love and unity of god as jesus prays in uh, john 17 that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me so that's Jesus' prayer, that we be in this community relationship, this extension of, of God. So where do we experience that unity in community? In the body of Christ, the church. So let's go on to singles in the church. It's through being set in the context of the community of the church that the pain of singleness can be alleviated and its benefits achieved. First, because part of the deep aloneness we all feel is not just that original sense of being alone that Adam had in the Garden of Eden. One of the roots underlying our deep sense of loneliness now has to do with the fact that we are estranged from God and others and even our own selves as a result of sin entering the world. And my counselor friend, Vina Sweetman, said that in her counseling ministry, she saw two kinds of people. Half were singles who thought that being married would solve all their problems and meet all their needs. And the other half were married who thought that being single would solve all their problems and meet all their needs. Both are deeply mistaken. If you're not content deep within yourself, then being married or unmarried will not solve your problem. In my interviews with people who have been divorced, I have discovered, we had to do that in Anglican Church for a long time, we had to have special interviews to make sure that people weren't making the same mistake as they had made the first time. 
And uh, so it was a quite a pastoral thing, but it was really gave me kind of a jaundiced picture of marriage, I must say. Anyway, um, one of the reasons I discovered for the failure of marriage is that people look to their partner for that need that only a relationship with God can fill. And unless you deal with that basic need and the healing within yourself that that, that can bring, any future marriage will have within it the seeds of failure. Our wholeness is to be found in Christ, not in marriage or any other relationship. So how we address the pain of being single and finding this wholeness begins with allowing Jesus to become our Lord and Savior, to deal with our deepest sin and desire for new life. Then it involves coming to the cross where we bring our pain and our loss before God. Uh, a single woman priest writing on the pain of singleness, she says, if we spend time being open, honest, and alone with God, the real sources of pain can be unearthed and grieved. Then singleness can become not the reason for the pain, but its context. Read that again. If we spend time being open, honest, and alone with God, the real sources of pain can be unearthed and grieved. Then singleness can become not the reason for the pain, but the context. 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 X. So putting hope to death. I know this sounds hard, but I'm telling you, this is the way it's got to go. <laughs> putting hope to death before God is unbelievably painful and liberating. That's what she finishes up the quote with. Putting hope to death before God is unbelievably painful and liberating. Now, this is far easier to say than to go through. Yes. I don't understand what that means. To put hope She's saying putting hope to death, the hope of seeing yourself fulfilled in marriage, when you acknowledge that that's not going to happen, then singleness becomes something different, not just the cause of your pain, but the context within you can then go on with your life. So she's saying she's not talking about like putting the hope of getting married to death. She's talking about putting the hope of like finding ultimate fulfillment. Well, you, you've heard a quote. So I, I, would, I, I, I would say singleness itself. I, I would say that putting, putting that hope of, of, of it's probably both, both the hope of being married, but also fulfilling yourself through marriage. If you recognize that, okay. let, let's, let's put the two together. I'm just trying to understand where she's, whether she's talking yeah. about her particular situation or whether she's saying everybody should like give up hoping for. No, I, th I think she, 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 she's saying when you realize that, that marriage is not an option for you, then that's the, that's the context in which you can move forward. So if you're a person who realizes marriage is not. So not everybody would have that realized. No, 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 no. Thank you, friend. Thank you for clarifying that. Hope you heard that. I realized what the, the, the situation was as I gave my answer. So, as I said, it's far easier to say than to go through. But if we don't, then we can remain lost in self-pity and depression. And the priest goes on to say, it was after I had crucified the hope of being a biological mother that I was free to love the children around me without an empty longing inside. 
And this could be echoed by men longing to be fathers or those same sex attracted realizing that other sex attraction is not developing. The cross involves choosing reality over appearances, integrity and honesty over temp the temptation to settle for a fantasy. This is again a quote from her. The cross involves choosing reality over appearances, integrity and honesty over the temptation to settle for a fantasy. And she summarizes, the people who live most freely are those who are most integrated, who recognize life as it really is and live with reality rather than in fantasy. And this process we can begin to engage as we are open with God. And I think this would be the same for all of us married or unmarried when we realize there are certain issues and things we need to come straight and clear with God and recognize that certain things are possible or not possible. So we're going to explore this further when we talk about intimacy. So addressing our pain, we can then discover the great support that God has designed for the normal need for human companionship for those who are singles. It is in and through the church. And we quote here from Psalm 68. Could you read that, please? A father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners the singing. Now, you might say that God has a special concern for the lonely. And Jesus emphasized this when he, he was told that his family was waiting for him outside. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And even on the cross, he had concerns for the single, because what did he do? He says to John, single, about his mother, who was widowed, you know, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. So he was in, he was by the hanging on the cross, he was concerned about those who were single. And it says from that time on that this disciple took her into his own home. And then Paul's letters to the churches, he treats them as families with, in which both the married and the unmarried are joined together as one family. For example, is uh, uh, advice to Timothy. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. So I believe that it is in the context of the church where singles can find their needs for companionship met and thus have a base for their unique ministry. So we'll now look at that, what that ministry is. It's ministry both of singles and ministry to singles. So to look at the ministry of singles, we begin with Jesus, of course, after all, because he was single. And not having family responsibility, he was, he was free to give his time and energy to the wider church, the wider circle. And these areas are obviously the greatest asset of singleness. And Jesus said he came, he, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're all called to service, to minister in this world. For those who are married, the call is first to their spouses and children, mm -hmm. either permanently or temporarily. But for those who, sorry, <clears throat> they're called to the... <laughs> that they're always called to be spouses as long as the spouse is married. Um, but to those who are called to be single, and it is a calling either if it's permanent or temporary, 
we are called to serve in a wider capacity. And one important area today with the tragedy of broken families is the need for surrogate grandparents or uncles or aunts for the young and not so young. I know God has used me and others in that area. We were just talking about that at supper. <coughs> and in considering opportunities to serve, following on from Paul's advice to the Corinthians, a good question for those contemplating marriage or bemoaning their unmarried state is, would getting married have a positive or negative effect on your servanthood? Would getting married have a positive or negative effect on your servanthood? Or your widowhood may have brought you great grief, great grief. But can you also rejoice in the service you are now able to give and perhaps even see it as honoring the gifts you receive from your loved one, which you can now share with a wider company? Another ministry of singles is an example to the rest of society. So more people today are single and making serious errors in judgment when it comes to relationships. And because we aim not to get involved in a series of dead-end alliances, nor seek our fulfillment primarily in another human, the Christian single can stand as a beacon of light in the maze of distorted relationships. And in this way, we can benefit the whole of society, not to stand in judgment or condemnation, but as a model of hope. Another benefit of being single is that it gives more time to pray and study God's word, to receive training and learn more skills. Jesus was freer to pray and prayed alone often. But he also knew the pain of being alone under pressure in those times. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he needed his friends to support him at that time, but they failed. And in his aloneness, he asked God to take away the struggle, uh, to take away the cross to come, but the answer was no. Now, we may ask God to take away the struggle of being single, but are we willing to hear the answer, no, but I have something else in mind for you, painful though it may be, but it will be of great benefit for others. And perhaps we reply, my spirit is willing to be single, but my body would rather not be. <laughs> so Jesus knew what it is like to be alone when facing temptations in the wilderness after his baptisms. And temptations are often heightened when you are alone. I certainly feel that. Temptations to self-pity, depression, sexual sin, workaholism, overeating, or other addictions to fill loneliness with things not designed to fill that void. Jesus had to battle these just as we do, and we need help in the struggle of being alone. So this is where we come to the ministry to singles. And Jesus had a support system. You know what his support system involved? Having friends around the country and so on. He had friends he could relax and spend time with. So remember, the trio, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, they were such, just such friends. He often gathered around him the 12 disciples and took the inner circle of three on special ministry projects, Peter, James, and John. So we can do the same. I have been blessed in my life and ministry by having families or couples I can go to and share and unwind. 
those in families can adopt a single person as an alternate uncle or grandmother. This is a wonderful ministry to the single person drawn in, as well as the opportunity for the single to minister within their family situation. I am so grateful when people invite me over to supper. Well, I must say, I believe that single clergy get invited out a lot more, uh, single male clergy get invited out a lot more than single female clergy. I don't know if it's because they just assume that, you know, men can't cook, so therefore you know, <laughs> I need it. And of course, me being allergic to, cook, to cooking anyway, I, I do need it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've heard some people even say, well, you know, maybe, you know, the, the single woman clergy is kind of a temptation for the husband, you know, and the wife's not so keen, whatever it is. Anyway, but uh, do consider the single female clergy, uh, not just the males. But don't forget the males. <laughs> so I believe that this being set in families is a most healthy uh, outworking of the spiritual reality of us as the family of God. After all, we will be together for eternity as one great big family, so we might, get, might as well get used to it now. <coughs> Ever think of that? Right. Now, there are other practical ways in which those in the church, both single and married, can minister to singles. These are by helping people to celebrate significant events, such as birthdays or changes in jobs or home, or inviting them over for meals or festivals such as Christmas and Thanksgiving. And I am so grateful uh, for that in, in my life. Really, I'm privileged. For some single person, people, having another person to accompany them to and from social events can help take away the difficulty of entering or leaving a crowd alone. I find returning to an empty house after being with a large group of people a difficult transition. And so I appreciate having a couple or family to be with as a place to unwind before going home. That's just how I work. Sharing skills and expertise can also be helpful. So such as uh, helping in moving house or household maintenance, settling legal and financial affairs after the death of a loved one, cooking and cleaning when unwell, and so on. Another practical way the church can help is through physical contact. And I know we need to be careful here, and I'm not that much of a huggy person, but some people are really huggy. But this is where the hug comes in. So humans are designed to be held and touched. And this is one of the reasons why people get involved in unhealthy relationships as singles, not because of sexual needs, but non-erotic physical needs. Sexual temptation is strong, but there is such a thing as a non-sexual embrace. We have to be careful about this and always make sure we have people's permission to hug them before we do. Very important. But I've seen how important it is for so to so many in <clears throat> congregations where I have served of all ages and backgrounds. Some people have a special ministry of hugs. And uh, this is one way of ministering to singles and others for that matter. But just make sure that you ask. <laughs> I know in my church, I, have a, I had a beautiful chap who was on the staff and he was the, the uh, verger, lovely guy, beautiful guy. But it was downtown Montreal and we had some very... Uh, distinguished type, shall we say, from Upper Westmount. <laughs> Terry would go in and give them a great big hug <laughs> and uh, said, Adeline, welcome. And she said, well, if you, if you must be personal, it's Adeline. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
I think she maybe she appreciated that. But this leads us into the whole question of intimacy. And one of the things that I struggle with as a single person, and I see others, uh, single or not, struggling with, is loneliness and the ability to get close to people in a healthy, life-giving way. And I see the strain in my struggle in my relationship with God. And when I was on a sabbatical, I was able to read and reflect, and yes, experience the concept of intimacy, especially with God. Now, I do not have all the answers, and I am not an expert in intimacy. I really am not. But I will share you some of my discoveries that you might find helpful in the challenge of being single. So we're going to first look at the nature of intimacy, then at developing intimacy with others, and then intimacy with God. So what's intimacy? Well, in these days, if you say, you know, were you intimate together, you automatically mean, did you have sex? But it's possible to have sex without intimacy. And part of the pain of modern life is that so many are turning to sex in search of intimacy and are being disappointed. And a Christian counselor has noted that there is a pattern amongst people coming to see him about relational issues. They say, well, at first sex was exciting. Then I started feeling funny about myself. Then I started feeling funny about my partner. We argued and fought and finally we broke up. Now we're enemies. The elements of genuine love and intimacy cannot be obtained instantly. And we need to recognize that we are more than just physical beings. There are mental, social, emotional, and spiritual dimensions as well. And these must all be engaged if we want to develop true intimacy. So intimacy is defined in the dictionary as the conditional state of being intimate, <laughs> which is marked, I know that's kind of dumb, which is marked by close acquaintance, association, or familiarity, and it relates to our deepest nature. It speaks of warm friendship, understanding, and personal relationship. It is the opposite of loneliness. We've already noted, God has said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Right at the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. And he made a companion. So God knows we have a yearning for intimacy, for belonging, and that yearning is not to be denied but met in legitimate ways. And Henry Nouwen, in his excellent little book, Life Signs, anybody read Life Signs? Okay, this is a delightful book, Life Signs. Okay, you know Henry Nouwen, some of you remember, but Henry Nouwen was a, uh, uh, a Catholic uh, priest in- Large. Large, that's right, in Toronto and so on. Anyway, so he expands, of the, he expands in this book on this sense of belonging, and he speaks about intimacy uh, using the image of being at home. I'm gonna quote, home is that place or space where we do not have to be afraid, but can let go of our defenses and be free, free from worries, free from tensions, free from pressures. Home is where we can laugh and cry, embrace and dance, sleep long and dream quietly, eat, read, play, watch the fire, listen to music, and be with a friend. Home is where we can rest and be healed. The word home gathers a wide range of feelings and emotions up into one image, the image of a house where it is good to be, the house of love. Now, now I'm points out that we speak of dying as going home. 
and reminds us of the positive image of the prodigal sons returning home in the embrace of the father. And now and then speaks of homelessness as evidence, evidenced in refugee camps, uh, prisons, mental hospitals, overnight shelters, and so on. And tragic as these situations of homelessness are, the deepest sense of homelessness is the inner anguish of being absent to others, of not belonging anywhere, of loneliness. And now and then speaks of the greatest enemy of intimacy, fear. He points out that prisons, mental hospitals, and refugee camps are often built far away from the places where normal people live to keep the fear-evoking strangers at a safe distance. In Peter Jackson's uh, superb film, District 9, have you seen it? Mm -hmm. 1.8 million aliens, strange prawn-like beings, who have just come to Earth in a giant spaceship with <coughs> refugees, are to be moved from their camp, which is really a slum, which is on the fringes of Johannesburg, to a new location at a safe distance, two hours away. The sign outside the old camp says, paving the way to unity. There is a feigned unity and friendship which hides a deep fear and aversion. Nouwen says that we avoid intimacy with one another because of fear and move ourselves away from others, either physically or emotionally, to a safe distance. But then he says that, that the fear of intimacy can also drive us to a safe closeness, an unhealthy dependence on others, which is not intimacy at all. There is the feigned closeness found in cliques, sects, or club, places where people huddle together in mutual admiration or common suspicion of the outsider. And then there is the bentness spoken of in Genesis 3, where the curse on the woman is that she will desperately seek security through unhealthy submission to a man, a safe closeness. The man, for his part, is cursed with seeking domination over women, putting her under him at a safe distance away. The blessing of difference between men and women given by God has become twisted as the fear of difference. The first thing to arrive. Now they made, you know, fig, fig leaves clothes, you know. That's the first thing. Fear makes us, let's quote now, fear makes us move away from each other to a safe distance or move us toward each other to a safe closeness. But fear does not create a space where true intimacy can exist. So if fear is the greatest enemy of intimacy, what is the friend? It's love. And love is not a happy medium, a fine line between aloofness and excessive closeness. It is a way of being in which the tension between being aloof and being bent dissolves and a new horizon appears. Jesus says, do not fear, do not be afraid, it is I. He provides a new space for us where we can move without fear. Perfect love drives out fear. So God's love for us gives us a new security where we are called to belong to him, to dwell in his home. And when Jesus says, make your home in me as I make mine in you, he offers us an intimate place that we can truly call 
home. We are called to live in the home made by God in his heart. And it is fashioned for us by God who came to pitch his tent among us, invite us to his place and prepare a room for us in his own house. Being at home with God begins to free us to being at home with others. We'll look at each in the reverse order, developing intimacy with others and then at developing intimacy with God. So intimacy with others. During a, a, a silent retreat at the Anglican Franciscan Monastery at Glasshampton in Worcestershire, England, I picked up a little book whose title intrigued me, Being Sexual and Celibate. It is by Keith Clark, a, Capu a, Capu a Capuchin monk, and I found his discoveries very helpful in looking at how to develop intimacy with others. And I am still working on this. I've always felt that being, that being able to have a healthy intimacy is part of maturity, and he affirmed that. A mature relationship is not dependence as a child, not independence as an adolescent, but interdependence as an adult. In true intimacy, we do not nurture and sustain ourselves at the expense of the other. In true intimacy, we do not nurture and sustain ourselves at the expense of the other. Intimacy is not used to harm or manipulate, but provides for mutual self-giving. Intimacy is a letting go of the other person where you are safe to be yourself and reveal yourself and not to be worried about judgment or critique. Intimacy allows you and the other to have differences and is also a place where you can affirm the gifts of the other. And this letting go of the other person is also expressed in what this, this author calls the focus of the moment. Here you affirm to the other, you are the most important person there is. Then after this moment, both of you will carry on independently. In other words, at this moment, there is no other person or preoccupation as important as you and your well-being. But afterwards, other people and concerns will preoccupy us. Now, this surprised me, but then I thought of my own relationships, which follow this pattern. Engaging with another in a manner that clings or possesses, even when absent from another, is unhealthy. Engaging with another at a deep level and then letting them to be free to continue their lives without any control by me is healthy and liberating. What I found helpful was Clark's affirmation that the key to healthy relationships is admitting one's loneliness and the need for intimacy. And this is part of the acknowledgement of our pain we looked at in the last section. We have no other better example than Jesus himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not hide his feelings of loneliness and his need for intimacy. Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with the sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So acknowledgement of loneliness begins by looking at symptoms such as dissatisfaction with being alone or with being or with being in a group and feeling disconnected. 
as well as seeming failure, stress, and fatigue, and also resentment. So these, if you acknowledge, recognize these symptoms, it can point to the fact that you're really lonely. When we don't admit our need for intimacy, we engage in unhealthy responses. One is avoidance. We submerge ourselves in activities and projects and being useful to others. But this will lead to further isolation. I am the only one contributing or are looking down on others. They are doing an inferior job. Or putting them on a pedestal. They're doing much better than me. Such thoughts are a clue that you are feeling isolated from almost everyone because you have ignored or denied your own sense of aloneness, separateness, incompleteness, and neediness. Another response is resentment. I haven't been recognized or appreciated by my parents, teachers, employers, etc. This is a deeper signal of your denial of your genuine need. Quote, Resentment is a defense against dealing with loneliness at a deeper level, just as avoidance is at the surface level. Resentment is a defense against dealing with loneliness at a deeper level, just as avoidance is at the surface level. So unhealthy. How about the healthy response? Okay, admit you are lonely. Admit you're lonely. This is not easy. You to admit that you're lonely. Acknowledge your disconnectedness. And if you're not ready to explore the depth just then, then a temporary, a temporary solution is distraction. Not avoidance, but you might be playing cards or listening to music, calling friends. But you need to admit, I am lonely. If you are ready to enter its depths, try a time of reflective solitude to do the following. So you don't feel like doing it, do some of those other things, distractions, but don't put it off. Then work on the deeper issues, the reflective solitude. So here, one of them, acknowledge your wrong responses and face the mechanisms you've been using to try and deal with loneliness, such as seeking approval of others and overperforming. Personal experience. Hmm. Realize God has accepted you in all your neediness. God has known me all along in my shallowness, fragility, and embarrassment. Three, admit that you have made an idol of loneliness and disconnectedness. An idol is an end when it is supposed to be a means. An idol is an end when it is supposed to be a means. Your disconnectedness and incompleteness is meant to lead you to intimacy with others. Your recognition of the depth of your neediness in a moment of profound loneliness will allow you to let go of those for whom you care because you don't want to use them for your own need fulfillment in an unhealthy way. And this leads to a new freedom for yourself. Now I am free to choose to care for others because they need care, not just because I need to care for them. This leaves others free to reject or accept the care I offer. Having unmasked my idol, I am less tempted to refashion others into my own image of who they should be, and I am less demanding that they respond to me as I anticipate and desire. 
acknowledging your own neediness and knowing your own fragility, you can reach out to others who are needy and fragile. You are free to choose behaviors which allow intimacy to arise. Well, I believe this is the healthy approach to intimacy with others. Finally, intimacy with God, the real challenge. The ultimate context within our singleness must be set in uh, friendship with God, which is at the heart of the Bible. Abraham is spoken of as the friend of God. We read in James, would you like to read this, please? The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. In Exodus 33, we read the story of the tent of meeting where people could commune with God. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Then we read that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The term friend is somewhat intimate and conveys a sense of closeness, trust, and sharing. In Luke 13, we see Jesus' desire to draw us close to him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. So God calls us his friends and God desires intimacy with us. But how is this to be done? Right away, we could list the time-honored ways of developing our friendship with God that we all know about, immersing ourselves in scripture, prayer, fellowship, obedient service. These are all valid and essential, and I will not expand on them. Expect to explore with you briefly new facets of devotional life that I have discovered for developing my intimacy with God. And it has to do with the Psalms and Celtic spirituality. So to me, at first sight, intimacy with God looks more difficult to achieve than intimacy with people. And that may be because I am a male. Men approach intimacy by doing, women by being, generally. Men develop relationships with other men by doing things together. That's certainly my last parish, we had a men's breakfast and then we did things together. Women develop relationships by talking together. I know it's a generalization, but I think it's a helpful one. King David is a good example of a man who had intimacy with God. When David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, it probably resonates more with women than with men, especially if you have a British background or are more macho. But David was definitely a man of action and yet was able to balance that with an attitude of contemplation. And David speaks of yearning to be at home with the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So David is a good example to follow. And I found that using the Psalms is a great way in developing intimacy with God. The Psalms are full of expressions of healthy intimacy. They are truthful and honest, expressive of anger and joy, disappointment and yearning. And I often wondered why uh, monks and nuns 
had the discipline of saying the Psalter, the Psalms, over and over again, like every month. Uh, that's the, the traditional uh, Anglican uh, rota. And why great saints in our Western church, Protestant and Catholic, have so valued the Psalms. Well, now I know why, having followed this pattern for the past umpteen years. The Psalms help us in developing an attitude of reflection and intimacy with God. And there is a spirituality which reflects the Psalms more closely than the mainstream European approach to Christianity, and that is the heritage of part of us, the Celtic. Biblical Celtic spirituality is more intimate and earthy in its approach to God, and I have found the style of prayer refreshing and engaging. It is less analytical and more intuitive, but at the same time intensely Trinitarian and orderly. So as a single, I commend it to you as an example of a way forward in developing our intimacy with God. I close with a night prayer from the, the Northumbrian Communities Prayer Book. I will lie down this night with God, and God will lie down with me. I will lie down this night with Christ, and Christ will lie down with me. I will lie down this night with the Spirit, and the Spirit will lie down with me. God and Christ and the Spirit be lying down with me. Open to questions. Any questions from the uh, from Zoom land? Over here. Right. Yes. First of all, thanks very much yes. for your lecture tonight. Really appreciate it. What what has been your experience, and it's it's actually very prevalent in every church right now, is single Christians and dating sites finding. Yeah. There was even actually on the Christian radio station a couple of years ago, which made me very angry. Heard an ad for "Let us help God find you a mate," <laughs> and I called him up. I was so furious. I said, "Really? Now he needs help?" Huh? And and I personally, I would never go on one. I'm just recently widowed. Um, three and a half years ago after being with my wife for 40 years and I'm hanging around with a whole bunch of singles and most of them are gals just because there seems to be so many more single females than there are single males and and if there aren't single males in your church or single females you know you can kind of see why it's tempting to maybe get on a site you know and and see if there's somebody out there you know but but I've been seeing a lot of terrible um, letdowns for people, and and uh, my own, two of my own sisters have been taken for thousands of dollars mm. by and on, on a Christian site, and and on and on. And I'm thinking, man, you sure got to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince, you know, if you go to the root of the dating site. But what is your opinion on that? Yeah, my opinion, having not gone on a dating site and being uh, kind of really past that, um, I would say that dating sites are probably neutral. Now, anything on the on the <coughs> internet can be very vicious. Um, uh, but I, I, would, I would treat it as a neutral situation, but being very alert. I believe God can use dating sites. Um, I know some very responsible people whom, whom I know and who have used dating sites. And uh, I also know of one marriage, which seems to be quite successful. And that was about 30 years ago, or 25 years ago anyway. 
um, when it was really new. I mean, I was quite shocked. Oh, she's gone on the dating site, you know, but the marriage is stuck. Um, so I would see it as kind of a neutral thing, as much as like lots of things on the internet are, are you know, can be used for good or, or for evil, but you have to be cautious. But I would say that it could be used by a tool because people have different patterns these days of meeting one another and so on. So I think it's harder for those of us who are in the later part of our life because that's not our way of doing it. It's just my. Brett, can I say something to that? Can I say something about that? Yes, by all means. Because I spent a lot of time online dating. <laughs> 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 Seven years. <laughs> I was thinking of you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I think that, like, I know lots of people who've met online, and like my siblings, they're in long term relationships. All three of them met their significant others online. So it's kind of become like the most common way in my age group to meet people. So, and I think like some of the points you're making, like in your church, if your church doesn't have single people, especially an issue for single women in the church. Um, which doesn't really help when you go online because it doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's a bunch of single Christian men online. But uh, I think that I, I'm taking a break right now because I find this is me speaking for myself. It tends to make me more consumeristic towards other people and like really judgmental. I find that it makes me into a worse person. And so I go, I go back and forth. I struggle because I'm 37 and I'm like, I don't know how it's to meet people. Cause I'm not, I like, I work at a job that's not Christian. I'm, you know, like I'm at a school that's not Christian. My church doesn't have single men. So where, where do I go? They don't have dances anymore. You know, like what do you do? Um, and so, yeah, so I don't, I do not think it's the ideal way to meet people personally. I just don't know what the other options are. So I kind of go back and forth with it, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. I think most people who are online dating are pretty, burnt out and cynical in my experience with both men and women for different reasons I think or overlapping but different reasons uh, thanks that's my two thanks Liz that's very helpful yeah. thank you for being so transparent yeah can, can I I bet I, I still okay I really sorry, um, sorry the scope of of your talk tonight and how you looked at so many different facets of it um the way you skillfully you know wove the scripture in um I think the point you made about um, until we had that contentment with God and that that relationship with God that that it's detrimental to our other relationships because we're going to be looking for try to draw from from those relationships things that only God can fill and like I think that was such a like a key point to make so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, Martine from Montreal. Yeah. Hi, I just want to make two points. Um, Hang on, hang on, Martin. We're just working on the sound. Sure. Got it. I just wanted to make two quick points. One, but thank you for that whole section on home and intimacy. I really resonated with the, those beautiful images of what home is. But I think, and you know this so well because you're in the healing ministry, that we there's another dimension to intimacy that we didn't talk about, and that is if you've gr grown up in dysfunction or had a lot of losses, and and your trust capacity has been broken then all the time praying in front of god is not going to heal you you need to deal with what that capacity to not trust anybody not god not others not yourself and that's sometimes a very long long journey um, and also with the help of other people i don't think just praying out your need to god is going to fix that that's one thing 
Thank you, Martin. That's very, very helpful. I, yes. I endorse that. Um, and then just a quick other thing is I, I read a book called Love is a Choice on Codependency. And it, it's a great book if you really want to know what codependency is. And they made a point that was so interesting that in his experience as a therapist, um, people who were the most codependent had the most romantic notions, romanticized notions. So sometimes that whole idea of being married is just you, you want to come out, you want to get out of your pain. And so you idealize that the marriage is going to be that. So I thought that was also interesting. Very helpful, Martine. Thank you. I'm not sure if this works. I'm, uh, do you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, Larry. Oh, hi, uh, Brad. It's so nice to see you. So, <laughs> yeah. so long. thank you very much. For, uh, thank Larry? you very much for all your thoughts. Yeah, she's in Montreal. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm in Montreal. I just, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen you for yeah. a decade, Larry. Yeah, years. I know. It's been it's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for your talk tonight. I have a couple of thoughts. One is I, I really appreciate what Martine has said. And it also makes me think about, you know, the whole idea of attachment and how that often is affected by trauma. So uh, what I'm understanding as I'm, you know, trying to grow up, I guess, is that the more landed and attached I become within myself, the more I'm able to do it with other people. Uh, so that's a whole process that I think um, is part of um, the, the time that we spend with God, but also how important our healing, healing is is happens often in engagement with other people in an engagement in community as well. Um, I also was wanted to respond to the gentleman that was talking about um, the, the uh, dating sites. I mean, I think being a minority living in Montreal uh, where the Christian community is very small. Um, one way to look at the internet is that it really allows the, the world to be open to, to us to a broader Christian community that doesn't really is very small here. And so that's quite uh, a good feature of it. Um, and also, you know, I see it uh, in the same light as if I'm looking for work, then, you know, the Lord leads an active person. So I'm, I'm engaged in looking for that and for what opens up as a result of God's guidance. So I see any work around the, the dating sites as a very similar thing in our lives. And I also wanted to just address, it could be a bit of a pet peeve, I have to admit, about the idea that because you're single, it frees you up to do the ministry thing. Um, I think my, my experience as a single person is that um, it's true that I don't have to, uh, I'm free not to have to decide with someone else uh, what I do, which is a lot of freedom. On uh, the other hand, I'm all, all the responsibility of life is mine. So all the business of life, the work of life, uh, the, you know, I need to work because it's just me. I need to take care of all the day-to-day -day stuff. So I don't have a partner to divide that labor with me. So I'm not so sure I have any more time than anyone else does and so sometimes i feel like there's a lot of pressure as a single person to you know i'm the one that holds the ministry cap uh and i don't that hasn't been my experience my experience of you know i need a i need to take care of my own self financially i need to take care of my business the business of my life on my own um and as a 
you know, having aging parents, sometimes I find the single more the one without the kids often is the one that is assumed to be more pre available for caregiving. So I don't know. It's a bit, I find that a bit of a, a message that I've often not appreciated, <laughs> I have to say. Okay. Anyway, well, I'm done. Thanks, thanks so much for your observations. Others, comments here uh, on the line? Lori, sorry, I just wanted to add to what you said because I have very similar thoughts of, I've never heard it well articulated like you said it, but I feel like, and maybe this is also a judgment, I will say that, but sometimes I look at couples and it almost seems like they're absolved of doing some parts of ministry because the ministry is in their home with their spouse. And not all couples, obviously there are lots of very amazing outward couples that do ministry together, but that always has kind of like been in the back of my head where I'm like, you know, whether you're married or single, you're so called to, to, to ministry, you know, like inward in the home and, and outward, you know, to, to others. So that's always kind of, I have, a, I have a similar thought to you, I guess, about that. And it's helpful to hear you articulate that. Yeah. And I just want to say, I have never heard a sermon about singleness from a single person. And I love that. I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm serious. Because when, when people that are married talk about singleness, I'm like, I get it. But also you're married. So like, yeah. Yeah. yes, maybe that was your season at one point of life. But I think it's just, just like a marriage seminar, right? If you go to a marriage seminar, you want to hear from someone that's married because that's their life experience. And that's what they're working through day to day, you know? Mm -hmm. So not to say that it, it doesn't. You know, I just think that's a very unique perspective, and I'm so grateful that you share about that um, from your experience. You know? Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. I, I must say, in terms of, uh, Laurie, what you said about, you know, uh, singles, in a sense, having more responsibilities, I think that may be also a factor of gender, um, because I think more people do rely on single women than single men yes. Yes. to do a lot of that work. So uh, thanks for bringing that up, Laurie. That's a very important point. Okay, we've got um, I was thinking about, you know, the responsibility and what we're just talking about. I think it's more having to do with the age of your children. Um, for parents who have young children, um, you really don't have as much time do outside stuff but as the children get older a married couple can have quite a bit of time to do ministry stuff so yeah. i just think that that's also a factor um in in both of these things thank you Kathy. um i was an adult about half of my life as a single and half now as married and in a lot of ways life is the same <laughs> Um, in the <laughs> <laughs> Bob, for those who can't see, Bob is looking aghast at uh, Kathy, her husband. I always say things But I mean, the issue of being a mature person, you need to, to try to do that whether you're married or single, growing in your relationship with God, learning intimacy with other people, whether it's within marriage or singles. Um, all of that is is the same, only in a different context. Mm -hmm. And and after I was married a few years, I realized that, you know, that I brought myself along, <laughs> and and a lot of things have not changed, even though my life had changed hugely, because there were children fairly quickly. Um, but anyway, that was one thought. And then the other thought is when I was considering, you know, I was I was 
really wanting to be married for so long. And part of it was the pressure from the outside and the pressure that because I was visually impaired, people wouldn't want me, right? Mm. And so I had to deal with that and say that that was not true. You know, mm. that was, that's a lie. But it was there and strong evangelical push. Well, that's what you're born for is to get married and have kids. And so dealing with all of that and then gradually coming to a point of realizing that I, I could be a fulfilled, joyful, single person. Um, that was, it was huge. Mm. And to say, it doesn't matter if I'm never married. And then I remember praying one day and saying, God, do you want me to be married? Like, I'm going to ask you instead of my trying to decide what it should be. What do you want? And over a period of days, it seemed like the answer was, it doesn't matter to me whether you're married or single. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not such a big deal for you. It's, it could be either one. And I stopped worrying about it and didn't try. And I met Bob a few months after that. Thank you, Kathy. And, and I mean, I'm not saying that, that other people's experience should be the same, but that's just my experience. Thank you. That's very helpful. Could you hear on on the on the on the, on the Zoom yeah. link? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Martin has a. Martin. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I was going to say. Okay. Okay. Bob wants to have a, a rebuttal here. Kathy, Kathy, when I met her, had a really good seminar that she taught in a lot of women's groups called "Coping with Singleness," and we did meet at a Christian dating center. But it was called Bible College. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Sales school. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, just uh, but we have uh, Julia. Julia. Julia, who's just ahead of you, Martine. Sorry. Okay. Um, can you speak a little bit more to how the church can meet some of this family need? Because I was reading a book on uh, perhaps like some people that struggle with same sex attraction, but called to celibacy it's all well and good to say the church will you know you should find your family in the church but if the church doesn't want to be a family to single people um like if there's if there's not that kind of vision within the church um it's not going to be as there's not going to be the intimacy that they're longing for. So um, do you find that that the, the church is meeting this need or or how how is it to grow yeah. in this well, area? Yeah, I mean, I, I recognize that not all churches are the same. I mean, I've certainly found in, in the churches where I've served or been uh, that it's been a very positive experience. But I can imagine there'd be churches that would be not supportive, but I'm not so sure. I mean, things are changing now that people are no longer in church just because it's the thing to do. That they, that, you know, people are in church because they really believe. And uh, so I, I just experienced so much positive uh, support. I wonder if anyone else can speak to this because I know as a priest and as a man, you might, you know, have more invitations. Than yes, well, yeah. I think I do. Yes, yeah. especially I as I can't cook. Sorry. <laughs> I just had a couple of thoughts. I think it's a really good This point. is to uh, illuminate. About Julia's. Okay, Julia's comment. So, okay, hang on, Martin. I think one, 
practical thing is, I know it's very hard to come by space in Victoria, but I think living, if, if it's possible at all, like to have a single person living with you, it could be like a really great practical thing because that, that does help to share the load in on both sides. Like I, from my experience living at the Brie, uh, where, you know, even during breaks, we, we, Julia and Clark and their kids and I shared that house and the kids grew up with me, which was really awesome. And I got to be around a family and see a marriage up close. And, and I think that helped, that was good for both of us. I know that might be an unusual situation, but I think <coughs> like if I ever get married, that's something I would want to consider doing. Um, because I think that's, that's a real sacrificial, that is, there's a sacrifice on both sides, I think, but I think there's something mm -hmm. to be said for actually sharing your home, like maybe with a separate suite would be nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I mean, that, like that, that's like actual communal living, not just like, oh, I see you on a Sunday, you know? Right, um, right, yes. So I think and what one thing I really struggle with, maybe especially in Victoria, where there's a lot of transients, is that, yeah, sure, you get to know people in your church community, but they leave every two years. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's hard because you don't have that long-term consistency. So I find that in my friends, it's really hard at church, though, to be quite honest. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's go on to, uh, Michael, were you adding to Julia's comments? Okay. Go ahead, Michael. I also, I live with a married okay, nice couple. and loud for the people on Zoom. <laughs> I live with a married couple. Uh, they have two kids, and it's a constant stream of single young adults coming in and out of the house. Um, and it's been the biggest blessing in my life and in every everyone that has lived in that house's lives to share community and this kind of uh, family, basically. Um, and so I really see the benefits of that. And I, I hope that more, we invite lots of people so that maybe it can be encouraged in the church. Um, but one thing that I did notice is it's very hard for us to make connections with an older generation um, within the church. A lot of them, even if they're invited out, are, I'm not sure if they're nervous or they're used to staying home. Um, just in our experience, it's it's so much harder for us to build those connections, but we know that there's a lot of lonely um, older people in our churches, specifically in Penticton. Um, and so I think prayer in that, or just making an effort to really uh, make those connections with older people, uh, but I really see the benefit of living uh, with other young adults or even with a married couple in a, in a home, kind of like the three, basically. Um, so I would really encourage that. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela. Okay, let's move on to are you elaborating or are we because Marquis been waiting to ask. Yes, Marquis, it's very quick. Um, just another practical thing. A small group that I went to in DC was hosted by a couple and their kids were always around. We would have a meal and their kids were always around. Um, and I just I think that's a maybe if you don't necessarily have extra space to give, like opening up your home, you know, more than just church, but like something weekly where people can come and really get to know your family and then the last thing is just that I stayed with the family this summer while I was traveling that are missionaries and it is such a gift to see a godly marriage and discipleship of children close up because like I personally have never seen that honestly like my parents don't have a godly marriage and we were raised in a Christian home but not really like discipled and I and so it's so beautiful like that is such a gift that you can give to single or young married without kids you know whatever 
is to to for people to experience that relationally, you know. So okay, Martine, I'm passing it to you. <laughs> okay. No problem. You. No problem. I, I'm patient. I'm retired. I can. I have time. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say uh, that you know, in my experience, and it's been an interesting move in my heart because what I struggled with is, you know, will I love God less if I get married? You know, will there be less room for Him inside of myself? And like He's teaching me that you can. You can grow different rooms in your heart, you know, but I sometimes understand what St. Paul was saying of how you can be more single minded, because I find when I get involved in a relationship and I'm going out with somebody, let's say we're going out together. Um, it, there's a lot of stuff happening in terms of the interaction and the dynamics and um, sometimes I really enjoy the peace I have, you know, being single and not and not handling the complexities so i'm not sure if i'm just running away or it's a just a comment to make and the one thing i did learn from the internet though was it it, it helped me to write a really good song called the internet dating blues which i'm recording in the studio as we speak <laughs> thanks martine hey greg oh sorry okay well i was just gonna say i think you know one um, the singleness thing that I think really bothers me when, in the observation of it is, is older widows, you know, um, because particularly uh, someone who's been married, you know, all their lives and they get up now they're 80, 85, you know, or whatever. And all of a sudden their spouse dies and they're on their own and they've always related other people as a couple. And now, the other people that were couples are still yes. relating to other couples. Yes. And these, and, and, and it's, it's, well, women live longer than men. They get the last laugh, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, they're on their own a lot, you know, and you can, you can see, you can see it in church, you know, with, with, with the widows in church that, you know, they're just, they're so mm -hmm. desirous, you know, of company, you know, and, and the church provides that. So I particularly feel sorry for uh, widows that aren't members of the church, you know, for, you know, from our, just our work groups or, you know, whatever like that. And I think, you know, that is a real ministry, just, to, you know, take on somebody that's in that situation. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Okay. Hannah. Hi. Thank you for your, your I really appreciate it. Good. So, um, my question is probably a little bit more of a personal one because um, my struggle with singleness comes with more the being always in tension, you know, or always, you know, you're either, you know, it's, it's kind of like for a long time, I didn't want to be married and I just wanted that certainty of, okay, I'm just going to stay single and I'm, and I'm good. And I don't need to like worry about dating and things like that. Um, but like recently it's been like a, a lot more has been opening up. And so I'm back in like the throes of tension. And so I don't know if it's just like, I, I want to have some kind of set decision of, okay, I'm really looking for marriage or no, I'm not looking for marriage. And I don't know if that's realistic. I, I don't know if I, I just have to live with the tension, but um, I mean, I don't know if you made uh, a choice like that in your life. Like there was a point where you're like, okay, I'm just going to be focused and set on my singleness. And I wondered how you came to that decision. If, yeah, that. that is just, it's just the way how things worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I mean, not, not it when, you know, we're all unique. 
but that's just the way it worked for me. It was just kind of the natural thing for me. So it wasn't something that you were looking out for necessarily. Just worked out. Okay. Sorry not to be more. No. Elaborate than that. Sorry, I have so many comments. Go for it. But thanks for I being my so. My experience is paying. <laughs> okay. I was just because yes. I, I was thinking about the quote that you had earlier about crucifying mm -hmm. hope. And I think that actually sometimes hope can be very hard to live with. Mm -hmm. That can be an act of faithfulness too. It's the live in the like, I don't know, maybe like the constant being like, I'm giving this to you, God, while still holding my hands. Like either you can take this from me or you can give me something, but I'm I'm keeping open hands. And that's a really hard place to be. But I think that like for many people, that is the real place to be. So some mm -hmm. people do like have to crucify the hope, kill it but I think most people are in the tension and that's there's like a, a challenging faithfulness in that too. Do you think there's ever a moment where you have to make that choice that I'm going to actively continue searching for marriage or actively continue seeking to be single? Yeah but I've, that's be interesting to find other people's experience it wasn't my my issue but mm -hmm. but I really appreciate you sharing you know I mean, both of you sharing what you've experienced yourself. Yes, I can could, I could, I could just imagine that, you know, you just wonder, well, am I supposed to get married? Am I not, you see? That wasn't my particular <laughs> issue. I mean, other people thought otherwise, but, but I was pretty determined. <laughs> I don't want to be a hog here, but this had three, I can have two, right? Okay. <laughs> so you had this cute little graphic of this polar bear and free hugs for everyone. So, um, I've been a pastor for 20 years and a lot of young people uh, in the church and have found that um, even something as innocuous as a hug can be a contentious thing, depending who's giving it and who's receiving it. And you didn't really talk anything about boundaries in it. And as early as this Sunday, we have a fairly large church who goes up and gives the married pastor a full-on hug. And you're only about full-on hug. And they were like brother and sister. They're, they're close, but there's nothing there. But everyone around seeing this is making judgments. And I, being a pastor in that same church for 25 years, come to me and they say, you got to warn the pastor. You got to warn the young lady. You got to, you know. And um, so it became a topic amongst uh, a few of us. And um, if more than a few thought there could be something um, impropriety there, then there has to kind of be some boundaries. You know, we talked about the old classic side hug, you know, which which we make fun of. How's that a hug? You know, when you grab someone around the side like that. But I think for protection of this young lady who who was so appalled that anyone would even think that and for the protection of this married pastor, um, who someone could go to his wife who was in the Sunday school and say, hey, some chick was giving your husband a pretty good hug there, you know? So, um, and I have also seen men coming into our body and over a few weeks checking out the young women, the single women, mostly, obviously, and then before long giving hugs. And I'm thinking, okay, something very wrong about that, you know? So maybe just um, as a warning to everybody, you know, uh, Let's just we be very cautious, you know, in that, that we don't um, even have the, what they call the appearance of impropriety. Yeah? I love hugs, you know, but when, when my wife was with me, if a young woman after sermon would come up and want to give a hug, she was right there. And we would do that for each other. 
to protect each other, you know, and there could have been no intent. Someone was just fond of what you said and they wanted to somehow express it. And then we learned, we taught them all, hey, let's just give you a little bit of hug like this, you know. So am I being old fashioned or is, is that something that sounds like it? I, I think you, your, your words are well taken and we all, we do need to be very, very careful. Very important. I agree with you. I agree, but disagree. Only hug in private. That's not what I said. That's what I said. I, said. Uh, I think that part of the issues of singleness that we're discussing, and, and even the pressures on marriage is, you know, and, uh, and I've, I've talked to Liz, I don't think that sometimes people are single because of cultural sin. And, and just the way we think of touch. Because um, I know I knew a, a young woman that came to Labrie and, and she had some guy friends. And so they just assumed that she was being sexual with them. So she decided not, so she only hung out with the girls. And this is what she was getting from her family, from her gramps, you know, uh, who had like, you know, new calendars on, the, on his mechanics, you know, kind of garage and stuff. And uh, so she only hung with women. And so they started assuming that she was gay. Mm. And it's just that we have over-sexualized touch. Yeah. yeah. And because of that, people are really lacking physical touch. Yeah. And I yeah. think that as Christians, we should be able to offer that, just as you were mentioning it. We should be wary, but the church also needs to teach. Yes. To teach the importance of touch, the appropriateness yeah. of touch. Uh, where there is no guile, where there is, um, and so we do have, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think it's a, it's a tension there. Mm -hmm. And so we also need to not just back up so that the culture might not disapprove of us because some people are walking in from battered from culture and they've only received sexual touch, but they're actually really longing for non-sexual touch. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't have. I have to, to say, I totally agree. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I, I'm, I'm just bouncing off the sofa here. Totally agree. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah, yeah, I think to me the story that that gentleman was the first gentleman was saying, the boundaries. First of all, I think boundaries, you know, um, can be discussed between two people, and so so as an adult. Uh, you can clarify things. That's one. Secondly, boundaries have to be within a community as well. So I'm not so sure how concerned I need to be about what how other people interpret things um, uh, in a situation that you're describing. Um, and it would be, I think, a lesson within the church itself to really look at that kind of behavior when they're you know, someone's reporting to someone's wife about a hug. Like to me, there's uh, that's not a health I, I, that's not a healthy church environment in my view, or one that I would feel that very comfortable with. I understand that there have to be, you know, certain boundaries. I understand a pastor may say he doesn't want to meet individually with a you know uh, a young woman in his office. I, I see that there are you know important things for that. But to uh, look at, you know, a hug or any kind of touch in such a way that we're so, you know, concerned about how it could be interpreted or how it can be received, when that can be actually addressed and talked about and through, if there's a misunderstanding, I think we're 
we're losing the benefits for the sake of a lot of fear. So I really uh, agree with the second gentleman who spoke uh, because the first model uh, really actually is quite alarming to me. Thank you, Laurie, mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, I think there's too much distrust, you know, within churches. I know with our safe church thing, I went to one of the seminars or whatever you want to call them, and I came out of there just livid because I felt they're assuming I'm a dirty old man and I'm going to start yeah. molesting children. You know, when I came out at the end of it, I was I'm really, really angry about it. You know, and I, I think we overemphasize. I think, well, remember, yeah. a woman, her whole mission was going around giving people hugs. Yes. And I have a friend who, who does that too. So, yeah. uh, but, but I, I must say also, it's very important for me not to lead people on. And, and I found that was very difficult when I was a lot younger. And just by being nice for one, they, they thought like I, I was head, and head over heels in love with them. And, you know, that was very, that, that, that's just some very difficult things, but I was just nice. I, 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 you know, I didn't, you know, I just spoke to them and treated them as humans. And uh, they'd been so badly treated by other men that, you know, this was a huge thing for them. So anyway, you know what's, sorry, can I, can I just follow up on that? Did you want to follow up on that? Oh, uh, I think that some of the problem also is just so how we address church, uh, you know, that we only do it on Sunday. It can be hyper consumeristic. Our, our society is hyper individualistic and atomized. So that there, there is a lot of, there's an inability to have accountability. There's a lot of things that can go behind the scenes and we see scandals all the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one thing, one of the ways that it's, that it's not like a, a bureaucratic structure, right? Labrie, it's, a, it's a, a personal accountability that we see one another and we're constantly moving in and out of one another's lives. So if that something was being inappropriate, it would become very, people would, the community would become aware quickly. And I think that a larger church or a church where there isn't that kind of accountability. And so I think some of that, this appropriate touch would be, would make much more sense within the context of known community. Uh, so that's just, that's just one of the Thank things. you. Thank you, Park. Yes, okay. Elaine. Yes. Yeah. Oh, just back to what you said about mm -hmm. cultural sin and the reason for singleness today, because it's definitely a trend, like more people are being single, more people are lonely. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is like, where are the young men who are marrying like these young Christian women in the churches? Like where are like the young godly men? And like what has happened to marriage today where people don't want any part of it? Like I know we talked about this when we did singleness last time, but yeah, it just makes me think about like marriage is great. Like it is God's plan, but like why are so many people afraid of it? Good question. Or don't bother. I think I'll have that for another lecture, right? <laughs> I think Carla wants yes, to Carla. Go, go ahead. Uh, yes, I was surprised by this um, by this talk, uh, and it's excellent because you gave some very serious insight in what it means to be single. Um, uh, because in a sense, I've been seeing it from a different perspective. I've also gone through period of singleness and marriage, but uh, the fact of the matter is when I look out at the world, I see a lot of young people who are not wanting to marry and they're saying peculiar things that, well, I don't want to fall in love because then I'll just only get hurt. And um, 
various versions of this kind of thing. And uh, it seems there is a lack of commitment uh, there and not willing to um, understand that uh, marriage is, um, is, is, is a very dynamic and moving uh, thing. Uh, but I'm surprised by the number of people out there in our world for who, for one year, reason or another, are just single, and uh, it's not clear to me why they're why they're single. I mean, as if the opportunities to just meet people in ordinary second uh, settings has disappeared. So I don't know what your experience is, but. So I want to say just two things. Well, number one, I think what you said is excellent because I've never thought about this condition of singleness as a as a, a long term uh, as a phenomenon about which one should seriously reflect. So that is extremely um, interesting that you gave that in, in a Christian perspective, of course. But on the other hand, I'm seeing so many young people who um, somehow or other are just not um, getting together or coming out with certain things of why they're not getting together or, and to me, it's quite sad. Hey, thanks. Because um, there's, uh, sorry, there's something in a marriage that is, is positively unique and, uh, and uh, it's it's alive and it's never the same and it's uh, you know so uh, mm-hmm. what what do you think I mean have, do you come across these young people or well I think there are all kinds of different people but I mean some people yes there's been I I have a very jaundiced view because I see people's problems and so on and the counseling situations and I see people who've gone through tremendous pain so I can oh. understand why people would not you know and and i i'm not saying that everything was golden in the olden days and in fact i don't believe it was um but i believe that there's been a lot of uh uh you know pain within families and that that has really injured people and that we we do need to go through for a, a major healing a time of healing but um i would say that people un, unable to commit they really need to enter into um uh a time of healing and just not let it be, but to kind of work on it, because whether you're going to get married or not, unless you work on those deeper issues, those deeper issues are going to stay with you. And, and, and that, that's not going to be a very positive experience for you living as a married or single. You have one. Oh, I was just going to quickly comment on that. I know like growing up with friends. Like, nice and loud. So the sorry, people growing up for me with friends who like, you know, their parents had divorced and everyone in their family had divorced. And so they were like, I don't want to, that was like a big reason for a lot of friends that marriage wasn't something they wanted to pursue because they had like literally no examples of a healthy intact marriage and it had only caused pain in their lives and what they witnessed with their parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents and just like their whole circle so it didn't seem like a good thank you no it's helpful helpful observation other people who haven't yet spoken yes hi oh yes okay colleen <laughs> Well, I would just as an older person, I just wanted to say, uh, share a little bit of insight. Um, we kind of, uh, we kind of think about getting together with another human being. We kind of bump into them.
kind of thing. Um, it's sort of this random experience when really um, each of us should take responsibility and be more intentional in our lives. For instance, if we were to find someone that had some things in common uh, that would then translate to being able to minister together, for instance, as Christians. So you go to, um, through education or through um, conferences, you meet people of like kind who have a similar passion. It's not, you know, you have to consider like gifts, for instance. We all have yeah. spiritual gifts. We all have personalities um, that are quite defined. But we, when we think of dating, we sometimes just throw it all out the window. When we really could um, honor ourselves and other people by looking at those um, that wish list of people, people that you would be interested in, for instance, that might have a love of people, or they might have a love of of uh, travel, or they might have a love of um, of uh, working hard. Um, and then you take the gift mix of, of people, what, what comes naturally to them. And so you live out of that for your minute, any kind of ministry you do as a Christian, you, you don't just, um, you know, cut the grass for the church. If your ministry is to be a compassion giver, you know, you have to, um, we have to develop as Christians and we need to have that uh, taught in a way. Um, people miss out on that sometimes from their own parents. But um, yeah, we have to live more intentionally as Christians, I believe. Not that God isn't in the mix of this. He does what, he, what we cannot do and we do what we can do. And so I just wanted to encourage singles that we can look at it more intentionally, uh, but we also need to come to a place of peace in the, in, uh, the interim. Thanks. Thank you, Colleen. Yes, Mary Claire. Um, nice and loud for the okay. I have a question regarding a talk that I heard by a um, Catholic, Catholic woman who identified as a lesbian, but um, chose to remain celibate uh, because of her Catholic faith. Um, and she shares some values of remaining single. Uh, oh, values of remaining single. And one of them is that it permits, or it's um, a value is that it's an act of faith, or it can be an act of faith, to live in the immediacy of Christ returning at any time, uh, as opposed to settling down um, and marrying a Catholic. So I'm just curious if um, what you think about that, if it's a, a valid biblical reason. So considering, that because yes, Christ might become that's I mean, people have said that, that that's I, mean, I had I do have the rest of my notes on the one Corinthians seven, because people have have assumed that Paul was referring to that uh, as to why people shouldn't get married. Um, and it was actually 
it could have he could have been thinking of that, but there was a, actually a famine in in the Eastern Roman Empire at that time, and the, the, so there was a, an economic crisis. So that 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 may have been more what he was referring to this present time. Um, I think if that lady really feels that Christ should come, that that's that that's her, you know, that she's come to that conclusion. I, I wouldn't. Um, I mean, I just, I, whether Christ is delayed or not, I mean, that doesn't, I mean, I could die at any moment, you know, and I'd see Christ right away. So, I mean, but that's being older, you see. And I, I know anybody here under 40 wouldn't understand that. But, but I mean, I go to sleep each, each night saying, Lord, if I'm going to wake up, that's fine. But if you want me, that's fine as well, you know, because uh, um, so I could be, you know, uh, seeing the Lord very soon. Uh but I, I'm not sure. I, I hope that she hasn't kind of over-spiritualized that. Um, what do you mean? Well, by saying, you know, well, I, you know, Christ could come, therefore I will live as a, you know, a celibate life. Well, I don't think it was her reason, her Catholic faith was her main reason um, um, regarding their sexual ethics. Um, but it was a value that she provided. For oh. That was the value with um, regarding the call of singleness. So, so, okay, okay. Maybe I haven't quite understood what the situation was. So. Uh, I mean, it was, she was just presenting some, um, some values, some values towards um, the state of singleness. Is that it? So, so, so she was saying that because Christ was coming, I, 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 I don't think I've quite got it, actually. Being, um, being, she was giving an argument that being signal, single can be an um, act of faith, um, of um, being, I was just being ready for the immediacy of Christ return. Oh, I was, so she was getting ready. Uh, okay, if I got this right, that she didn't want to be in a state of ungrace. She wanted to be in a state of grace uh, if if Christ, because Christ could come back at any time. Is, is that more? I think that might be a more Catholic perspective. If I got that right or not, maybe not. Because I think a, a person would say in certain Christian traditions, you know, if you feel if you're not in a state of grace, you know, that's pretty bad if you die. You know, or if Christ should come back, that's you know that's pretty serious. So they, you kind of always want to keep short accounts with God. Now that's very good, no matter what tradition you come with. So I think to you know to just to keep every moment, we should keep every moment really, uh, as if Christ were to come back. Um, that would just sorry. Okay. Can I can I try and women's The way I'm I'm taking what you're saying is there's a certain kind of um you're saying like you're okay, you're not like building a home and settling down in the family and putting down these roots where you have a lot of attachments as a single person in the same way. And so if you're single, it kind of like with the virgins with the oil or whatever, you're kind of in this yeah, yeah. state of like you you don't and it's sort of like what paul's saying you don't have as many other distractions supposedly um so so you have this kind of maybe openness to being being ready like so i so maybe it's easier as a single person although that is a call for all of us um and like i've heard people say 
singleness sort of displays um, like the openness of God to the other, just as marriage displays like his loyalty um, and oneness. So thank you. So so there's kind of like it does might be called for all of us to have like unity as well as um, openness to the other, but there's like specific ways in which marriage and singleness kind of display those things more. I think that's that more helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Marie Clay. I'm I'm sorry I didn't quite understand. That's good. Other questions? Are we at the end of the evening? We're almost nine o'clock. So, well, thank you. It's been a a, a marvelous talk, and we appreciate it.